0: A number of years ago, I was in Manila in the Philippines, um, in a car with a man I didn't know particularly well. It was not many years after President Marcos had been overthrown in a revolution. And honestly, the sense of unrest was still thick in the air. As I sat in this car on the dashboard, I noticed this book, and it was entitled, um, Blueprint for Revolution. And the driver of the car, this this other guy that I didn't know so well, he noticed me looking at this book, and with a bit of a wry smile on his face, he said, um, "Oh, you saw my book?" And I'm looking at it, thinking, uh, "Yeah, yeah." Like, who are you? Are you some kind of revolutionary or something like that? And uh, he says, "Do you know what it is?" I said, "No, but it's got an interesting title." And he said, "Well, actually, it's a Bible." And uh, little did I realize that um, Campus Crusade for Christ brought out a a student Bible called uh, Blueprint for Revolution, and it was a New American Standard Version, and and we had a good laugh about that. Uh, This week in the news, I saw a a headline, has the world gone completely mad? It's a great question. Uh, with so much unrest, it it, it seems that people are wanting change. They're they're wanting to to overthrow systems and so forth that they they think are not right. Well, the answer to the question, um, has the world gone completely mad, is yes, but it's not recent. It happened actually a long time ago. And in John's letter, 1 John, which we've been studying, of course, the Christian's Um, that he is writing to have have, uh, every reason to believe that their world had gone quite mad. Um, A number of other apostles had been martyred. Uh, Crazy times, new, weird ideas were being floated, and and that's the situation to which John is writing. And as we get to the close of the book, it's a good reminder that, that John is, through the Spirit of God, also writing to us. Into our situation today. And I, and I trust that the word before us will, will bring you some, some reassurance and some, some comfort. In chapter five, verse, verse five, uh, John is actually talking about this very thing. Who is the one who overcomes the world? Who, you know, you might say overthrows the world. Um, it is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you remember a few weeks ago? I gave you a little bit of a formula just for simple, simple discipleship and went this way. B plus L equals S. Believing in Jesus and loving others is evidence that the Spirit of God truly lives within you, that you are born again and that you are abiding in Jesus. Now, over the last couple of weeks, Uh, in chapter 5, the latter part of chapter 4 and chapter 5 here, Ollie last week and myself the week before, we've been talking about the importance of loving one another. But it's impossible to love correctly if you don't believe correctly. So perhaps it's no surprise that coming to the end of this letter, John focuses once more on believing correctly. And the most important belief that we can hang on to, particularly in troubling times, the sort of belief that will actually help us to overcome the world is that Jesus truly is the Son of God, that he is who he said he is. And so here we are now in, in verse 6 and talking about the evidence. How can we know that Jesus is the Son of God? And in, in, in verse 6, John John says we can know that he is the Son of God by by the water and the blood, these two very important symbols. Now, what does this mean? What what does he mean in verse 6, by the water and the blood? Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. What exactly does that mean? Remember, John was correcting a, a heresy at this particular time, which which basically held that the material world is impure and the spiritual world is pure and the two cannot connect. Therefore, the incarnation is problematic. How could Jesus, who is pure and holy, how could he come to an impure world? Because the impure will make the pure impure. Follow that. Well, John is basically saying, well, this is exactly what Jesus did. The pure was able to come to an impure world and make the impure pure. He did this through the water and the blood. Evidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God is that he came to us through the waters of baptism and he shed his blood on the cross. His baptism and his crucifixion are evidences that Jesus truly is the Son of of God. How is that so? How is the fact that Jesus was baptized and that Jesus was crucified, how is that evidence that he he is the son of God as as he's claimed? Do you remember back uh, up in in, uh, chapter um, 5 verse 3 last week and and Ollie um, brought out this truth beautifully? In fact, this is love for God, that we keep his commands. Remember that verse, true love for God is to truly keep his commands. You could say perfect love for God is to perfectly keep his commands. Now, who is the only person who could possibly perfectly keep the commands of God and therefore truly and perfectly love God, the Son of God? And as Jesus was obedient to the waters of baptism and as he was obedient to his crucifixion on the cross, what the Father asked him to do, the, the commissioning of his ministry and the completion of his ministry. As Jesus was faithful and fulfilled the commands of God perfectly, he showed himself to perfectly love God and therefore proved himself to truly be the Son of God. But the water and the blood are not just evidences that Jesus is the Son of God. The water and blood are also important symbols for us today. The water reminds us of purification, which baptism is. It was a a, a ritual of of purification, of being cleansed. And this is what Jesus has done for us. By passing through the waters of baptism, he has modelled for us the purification that is available in him alone. In other words, um his righteousness becomes ours that's the purity that that he imputes to us he gives to us it's it's like um imagine uh, the glorified christ um, imagine the splendor of his garments that he he wears in his position in in heaven as the son of god And imagine him taking off a beautiful, a beautiful righteous coat and and placing it around your shoulders, um, asking you to holding it as you slip firstly your left arm in and then your right arm in and then then positioning it around your shoulders and fitting it perfectly and, and just marveling at what a great fit it is on you, offering you a coat of righteousness that you can wear every day of your life. That's what he does for you. He, His righteousness becomes yours and it becomes mine as well. We are, we are purified and water is a symbol of this. Think about everything that, that you absolutely love about Jesus and that's what the Father loves about you because now when he looks at you with this splendid coat of righteousness, yes, he, he sees the righteousness of his Son now upon you. Um. Everything that you love about Jesus, that's what the Father loves about you, which is why, going back to chapter 417, in this world, we are like Jesus. We now live under the Father's favor. We do not live in fear. The favor of God is upon us, and and we are like Jesus. We're learning to walk on earth as we are known uh, truly in heaven. And so so John is, is reminding us of this symbol of water, of purification, of the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ and and my encouragement to you as it is to, to me every day of my life is wear that coat. Wear that coat. Remember who you are. Remember the righteousness of Christ that is now yours. Remember the favor of God that is upon you. Wear the coat. Walk in that every day. That's the water and then there is the blood. And the blood reminds us of the redemptive work of God on the cross that he has atoned for our sins. Um, Some some years ago when we moved to our new house, we we had a gate and it had a name on it, which didn't particularly mean anything to us. Um, As it happened, a truck backed into the gate and through the insurance company we were able to buy another gate. And they asked us, you know, do we want the same name on the gate? And so we actually thought, well, seeing as the last name didn't particularly mean anything to us, this is a great opportunity to come up with a new name. What, what shall we call our house? And I don't know what name you'd come up with to go on your gate, but we thought long and hard, would we put our surname on it? Oh, would we, you know, we, would we put a name of God upon it? And we thought about many things. And we landed on um, a, a Hebrew word called harasah. And it simply means a new thing. In the Old Testament, Wherever God talks about, behold, I'm about to do a new thing, it is that word, harasah, And it talks about his redemptive activity, how he likes to take something that is broken and he loves to fix it. But the interesting thing is we see that God always does that in such a way that the new is better than the old. Whenever God promises a new thing, it's better than the old. If you think about uh, Joseph and his two sons, the first one, Manasseh, reminded him that, he could now forget his troubles. The second one, Ephraim, was a reminder of, of fruitfulness that God was going to give to him. Now, usually the firstborn son is more important than the second. But in this case, when Jacob blesses, blesses his sons, he crosses his arms and he, he makes the second more important than the first. The fruitfulness will be greater than your forgetfulness. It's good to be able to forget a broken and, and difficult past. But the fruitfulness that God brings is the greater thing. And it's a beautiful picture of his redemptive work. Think about Job, again, utterly broken at the end of himself. And yet as God redeemed his situation, what he did afterwards was far greater than than his former situation. And this is really the word harasa, a new thing, is a, a precursor to the gospel that God promises to do a new thing in all of us, just as, he, just as he did through his prophet Joel. His spirit in the Old Testament would come upon particular people at a particular time, but now he does a new thing and his spirit comes upon every believer and indwells us. This is a beautiful new thing and it's greater than the past. God's new thing in your life will always be greater than the old thing that you were trying to move on from, that you were trying to forget. That's a promise. That's the redemptive work of God. That's what the blood symbolizes. And so the water and the blood are evidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God, but the water and the blood are also symbols of of what Jesus has done for, for you and for I. And by accomplishing these things, once more, he has fulfilled perfectly God's commands and he has shown himself to love God perfectly. He truly is the Son of God. Now, there are times where where doubts can creep into our lives, and it can be difficult to to know what is true, like a fog that comes over us. We have to fight for truth. I'll never forget Charles Price, a well-known speaker, talking about sitting by the bedside of his lifelong mentor as as he was you know um, in palliative care and 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 dying. And his mentor, somebody who had written and published a number of books, somebody who had had taught Charles, who had been faithful um, in his walk with God for many, many years, he said to Charles, I have never known the fight to be as severe as it is now. Doubts, fog, temptation. It It was a constant battle for him throughout his life, but a fierce battle there towards the end. And it's a reminder that that battle for truth to truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God is, is one we will have to contend with for the rest of our lives. And John wants to reassure his, his believers here of, of the help that they have. They have, firstly, the evidence of the water. Secondly, they have the evidence of the blood. But, but now in verses 6 to, to 9, he talks about a key witness It's like a courtroom trial in which the key witness, the Spirit of God, who himself is truth, presents the evidence. And it's an open and shut case. It's a a slam dunk. It's a done deal. God's case is solid. The water, the blood, and the testimony of the Spirit prove that what God says is true about his Son. Let me read it to you. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Truth isn't something we we go and collect out there. Truth is a person. It's God himself. The spirit is truth. For these are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We know how to accept human testimonies, but God's testimony surely is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. John says that everyone must make a decision about God's testimony. Um, Whoever believes in the son accepts this testimony, and whoever does not, well, you're making God out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his son. It's it's interesting when we read that verse, we can sort of think as as humanity, as sitting there as the jury listening to God's testimony and making a decision as to whether it's true or not. That's not quite the picture here. It is a picture of a courtroom, but we're not the jury. We're the defendant. We're the accused. And what we decide about the Son of God is, is Jesus truly the Son of God? That decision is an important decision. And it determines the rest of our life. Do we have eternal life or, or not? C.S. Lewis once wrote that we only have really three options when it comes to deciding who Jesus is. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He truly is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But John is writing to those who have already made that decision that Jesus is the Son of God. John is, John is writing to Christians here to reassure them that they have decided that Jesus truly is the, the Son of God and that now they have eternal life. In verse 11, John says, this is the testimony of the Holy Spirit. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the testimony of God and the spirit of God, his key witness in in all of this courtroom drama. The spirit of God wants to lead us into this fundamental truth, that because of the water and because of the blood, you can trust that Jesus is the, the son of God. Because of the water and because of the blood, your life is transformed forever and you have eternal life. Do you remember the picture of the waterfall that I shared a couple of weeks ago? God's cascading love flowing firstly to us and, and then from us, filling us up and overflowing to others. Well, truth works in the same way. As I said earlier, to in order to love correctly, we firstly need to believe correctly. And the Spirit of God, his his job, remember, he is truth. He is the advocate, the one who will guide us into truth. He wants to... to to guide us away from our sea of doubts. And he wants to to bring us back under the waterfall of of God's gospel grace once more and and let it wash over us afresh. He, as as God's chief witness, wants to lead us back there and remind us of the power of water, of the power of blood, the power of water to purify us, that Christ's righteousness is now yours and and mine. Remind us of the, the power of the blood that our sins have been atoned for, that we have been redeemed. You and I, to remind us how beautiful and powerful these symbols are. The water and the blood remind us of of what Jesus has done for us, but the water and the blood also are evidence that Jesus truly is the Son of God. God's Spirit is the witness to these things, and and He will continually, forevermore, throughout your life, He will hold you firm in these truths, the power of the water and the power of the blood, the significance of the water and the significance of the blood. The work of the Spirit is to, to lead you back to the waterfall, to the source of eternal life. Let gospel grace wash over you once more and to reassure you that you are truly born again. You are a child of God. You are able to walk in his righteousness. He has redeemed you. You have a bright future, eternal life forever with God, and it will be better than what was before. I trust that you do find this this encouraging and, and reassuring. It's the revolution that everybody longs for, the change that not has to happen to the world, but the change that has to happen within each individual. That is how we overcome the world. Internal change and internal revolution. God bless you. Have a fantastic day.